This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is, without apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown. With an anti-abortion majority on the Supreme Court and several states attempting to outlaw abortion altogether, Many activists are on the defensive, hoping to hold on to reproductive rights in a few places and cases. This spirited book shows how feminism can start winning again. Jenny Brown uncovers a century of legal abortion in the United States until 1873, recalls women's experiences in the illegal days, and shows how the women's liberation movement of the 1960s really won abortion rights. She draws inspiration and lessons from the radicals of the Red Stockings, the Army of Three, and the Jane Collective, putting together a roadmap for today's organizers from the Black feminist argument for reproductive justice, the successful fight to make the morning-after pill available over the counter, and the recent mass movement to repeal Ireland's abortion ban. Brown argues that politically conservative nonprofits have been setting the agenda, emphasizing rare tragic cases and relying on the rhetoric of choice and privacy. Instead, it is time to return to the fundamental ideas that won legal abortion in the first place, women publicly telling the full truth of their own experience, demanding repeal of all abortion restrictions and showing how abortion and birth control are key demands in the struggle for women's liberation. Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now, by Jenny Brown, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Ayn Rand. I've never read more than a few sentences of a single text that she wrote. Yet her work and personality have come to define the politics and economics, and even more so, the mood of the world we live in today. You shouldn't have to read Rand either. She is, however, so consequential. So what to do? Fortunately, my guest today is Lisa Dugan, and she has written a really smart, engaging, and mercifully short book explaining everything that you or I or anyone really needs to know about Rand, Mean Girl, Ayn Rand, and the Culture of Greed. It's Great news, because instead of suffering through Rand's work in an attempt to grasp at how it somehow became so important, you can instead enjoy Lisa's wonderful book. Truly, there are not enough good short books like this that operate as an extended essay of sorts. Anyhow, before we get started, I'm pausing to ask for your support at patreon.com slash the dig. I have boxes and boxes full of left-wing books, perfect for dig listeners like you, 
to give away as a thank you. But what's most important for me to express to you is that this podcast is a completely financially independent operation. And aside from a small amount of advertising revenue, we are dependent on you to make this my full-time job, to pay my producer, our communications coordinators for music, web hosting, shipping, and all sorts of other things. Plus, I get an email notification every time someone new donates. It reminds me that you're out there listening and appreciate what we're doing. And I appreciate that immensely. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thank you. And here's Lisa Dugan, a historian, journalist, and activist who teaches at NYU. She is the author of several books, including Twilight of Equality, Neoliberalism, Cultural Politics, and the Attack on Democracy, Sex Wars, Sexual Dissent, and Political Culture, and Mean Girl, Ayn Rand and the Culture of Greed, out now from University of California Press. Lisa Dugan, welcome back to The Dig. So glad to be here. You write that what ties all of Ayn Rand together and what ties Rand to the core of today's political economy is a mood, which goes some way to explaining why Rand's ideas are so popular because it's not really right. about her ideas. You write, quote, the unifying threads are meanness and greed and the spirit of of the whole hodgepodge is Ayn Rand. To start, explain your argument as to why Rand operates most powerfully on an affective register, how that functions to legitimate and reproduce the dominant order, and also as an aside, what affects and moods are for listeners who don't know. Sure. Well, I'll start out just by saying that, say, in my business, American Studies, when you when people write about empire and colonialism, um, they also they 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 include in that writing about desire, fantasy, libido. They write about race, gender, sexuality, and intimacy. So, if you read the stuff on empire or colonialism, you'll find that people aren't treating it as a rational system based in institutions solely. They're they're dealing with 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 fantasy and desire. But most people who write about neoliberal are social scientists who don't write about uh, fantasy, desire, and libido. But it seemed to me that neoliberalism is actually rife with that, and that is one of the ways people are recruited to consent for really brutal um, neoliberal policies is they're recruited through their feelings and their fantasies often. And this happens in the case of Ayn Rand. Most people encounter Ayn Rand in high school. So they read these the <laughs> so two <I've> big novels, right? <laughs> 
Um, have you read? Have you read either one of them? Did no, you read them in high school? No. I I was already a commie in high school. Okay, so so was I. I also didn't read um, didn't read her in high school. Um, but so most people do though encounter her initially in high school, and she's the novels are a kind of conversion machine. So uh, many people who go on to a wide range of different kinds of right wing and pro capitalist politics start out by being fans of Ayn Rand, and then they encounter Milton Friedman or the International Monetary Fund or the Cato Institute or the Koch brothers later. But they're sort of set up through the fantasies of heroic, sexy, entrepreneurial uh, supremacy. Um, She's by a gateway drug. In Ayn Rand, yes. It's like it's a, it's a drug. It's, an, it, it's filled with a sense of like aspiration to superiority um, and a sense of me against the world that appeals to adolescents a lot. So it's a big machine for converting adolescents to a, a set of feelings and fantasies that then fold into conservative right-wing and pro-capitalist politics. Um, so, you know, though Ayn Rand herself is no neoliberal, um, she was formed in the early to mid-20th century. She started out as a Russian immigre um, who was anti-Bolshevik. That was her primary uh, uh, formation herself was through her opposition to the Bolsheviks, and she became an expat and came to the United States. But at the core of that was anti-solidarity. So she used the term collectivism, but what she was really opposed to was the solidarity of the losers and the moochers. And she saw, you know, when people who are inferior band together, they ruin the world. And so the affect that goes with that is contempt, derision, kind of superiority, a kind of cruelty that is uh, formative from her early on. And then it carries through the whole 20th century where she becomes anti-New Deal because of the compassion uh, problem of the New Deal. She becomes anti-communist. Um, yeah, but the thread through all of it, she didn't actually understand capitalism, and we can talk about that later. So her ideas about capitalism were actually really uh, you know, distorted and, and, and fantastic. But the thread that follows through is the, the affect, the feeling of anti-solidarity and contempt, derision, and superiority. So... It was- it wasn't just to pause you for a second. It wasn't just that she opposed solidarity, but even opposed caring about others caring because about that, other like just yes. on a most basic, like an anti-morality because that would inevitably lead to solidarity or was right. solidarity and in, in fact, maybe I'm, I'm piling that into the word solidarity, yeah. right, as, as opposed to collectivism, as it involving a feeling. So solidarity isn't just an alliance. It's a feeling, right? So you feel solidarity with others. It's a way of identifying in and through other people and their struggles. Um, so it isn't just an aligned set of interests. As It, it is a, a, a kind of feeling, too. I mean, I would say solidarity is a feeling, right? So when you watch the teacher strikes, the recent teacher strikes, and they, feel, they you get all choked up from watching them, the feeling that one has, I would call that solidarity, right? So she's the anti-solidarity, right? She's the like contempt and derision for that feeling, and instead identifying with a feeling of derision, contempt, and superiority. And so what makes her then, though she was not herself a neoliberal because her formation is too early, she becomes an icon of neoliberalism. 
Judaism, um, especially after 2008, but even before then, because of the affect of neoliberalism, because neoliberalism in, in formed as it was formed in, say, you know, Western welfare states, um, it was formed as a kind of rejection of, of the New Deal, and not just the policies of the New Deal, but the affect of underpinnings of the New Deal, right? The sympathy with others, right? Solidarity with the poor, with working people um, across color lines, right? Um, she produced uh, a set of affects that reject the affective rejection of the New Deal that became at the heart of neoliberalism. So neoliberalism, the kind of, we don't care about children in cages, we don't care about losers and moochers, we don't care what, the the feeling center at the heart of the policies, she's one of the primary suppliers of that, right? One of the sources of that for people who read her, become fans of her, or just maybe they never read her, but she becomes a reference point across the conservative political spectrum. All different kinds of conservatives and right-wingers um, reference her as an influence, even when they haven't actually read her. You take Lauren Berlant's concept of, of cruel optimism, yeah. which refers to the set of feelings yeah. necessary to keep hustling against the odds. Yeah. And you remake it to define Rand's register as one of optimistic cruelty. I reversed that. Explain these two concepts and how the two functionally and sort of simultaneously, I think, relate to one another in American life today. Yeah, I mean, I, Lauren Berlant's book, which is titled Cruel Optimism, is really a very brilliant excavation of what it takes to keep going in the face of all of the um, losses and depredations of, um, of, the, the, of the loss of the social safety net and the, you know, the loss of decent jobs, all the way that all the losses of neoliberal policy, people endure them by investing in some version of the good life even when they can see that it's being cut out from under them. So you still apply to grad school. You still go on the job market, even when you can see no one's getting jobs. You still you get your precarious jobs with the belief that you're eventually going to get some um, security. You're eventually going to – it's going to get better. And so she is a really brilliant, careful excavator of those traces of feeling that keep people going, even when – the odds are all against them and the evidence is all against them. So they retain the sort of cruelty um, of optimism in the face of an actual lack of flourishing. Right? An optimism that's cruel to them. To, to them. The optimism is cruel to the person who embraces it, um, who, who, who works to remain optimistic in the face of an actual failure to flourish. That is the result of policy. So she's writing about the 99%, right? She's writing about the ordinary people and how they keep going. Well, I wanted to really talk about how people come to identify with the 1%, even if they're not in the 1%, right? The way that set of identifications works so that people people's aspirations align with Donald Trump, even when their lives do not. I So I use the term um, optimistic cruelty and specifically uh, applying that to the way Ayn Rand's ideas work because it's, it's sort of the ideas that fuel the rise of capitalism in the United States are that these forms of cruelty, right, these hierarchies, these brutalities will lead to the best life ultimately for everyone, like 
the entrepreneurs will make jobs, and even though people won't make very much money, they don't really deserve and can't really appreciate more than that, um, and that we'll get the best world possible if we have bro- brutal, raw, competitive, unregulated capitalism. That's really the best possible world for everyone, and that's the premise of Atlas Shrugged, is that when uh, the, new, the New Deal erodes that kind of raw, raw capitalism, the world d- disintegrates and collapses, and, and the, the the entrepreneurs have to escape to their their little utopia, and we would see it as dystopian um, Galt's Gulch in order to escape the world um, that's collapsing, um, and it's collapsing um, uh, in the uh, the face of the erosion of raw capitalism. So that's optimistic cruelty. Um, the identification with that optimism about cruelty. Though in this political moment, I wouldn't call it optimistic cruelty anymore. It's really much grimmer and and darker vision that advocates of of, um, Ayn Rand have today, whether they're in the Trump administration or whether they're in Silicon Valley. It's a much grimmer, darker view. I was reading an essay on Patreon recently by uh, Richard Seymour, and it was about the death drive of capitalism, right, and about climate denial as being the capitalism's death drive. As in, no longer are they investing in this vision of of ultimate good and triumph. They're actually just right to the death, going to take everything while it burns to the ground. So I'd say in the present, I wouldn't call it optimistic cruelty anymore. I would use that to talk about the 20th century layering in of of, of Ayn Rand's uh, feelings as they applied to the, the rise and the triumph of a certain kind of capitalism. You write that Rand's work, quote, creates a moral economy of inequality to infuse her softly pornographic romance fiction with the political eros that would captivate a mass readership. And another line along these lines, quote, The Fountainhead offered simultaneously eroticized and moralized character studies embedded in a heroic romance plot for the purpose of generating desire for capitalism. And another great line along these lines, quote, Ayn Rand made acquisitive capitalists sexy. She launched thousands of teenage libidos into the world of reactionary politics on a wave of quivering excitement. How does Rand's work use the erotic structure of her character's interpersonal relationships as a vehicle for the eroticization of capitalism? Yeah, that's kind of key to the impact she has because it really is the kind of erotic uh, force of her novels that that works as the conversion machine. Well, she started out as a child in St. Petersburg reading imperial children's fiction. So she identified with, say, British captains in India um, who showed their superiority over the savage Hindu masses and so forth. And she had a kind of erotic thrill as a child um, in, in, uh, in these characters, and she wrote about them in her journals and so forth, these characters from uh, British and German uh, children's fiction. Her fantasies about them was that their superiority, their imperial superiority, these very Aryan characters um, who were physically perfect, who were dominant over the lower orders, who were contemptuous, who were, that that was, to her, that was sexiness. So she produced a kind of 
in this case, masculine. She had a feminine version of it, too. But she had a masculine sexiness that she just quivered to. And in writing her masculine characters, she eroticized these qualities. Um, So she's not doing it wholesale. She's not making it up. She's drawing, and this, I think, is key to her popularity because she was massively popular. She's drawing on deep threads of civilizational discourse. So people read and they recognize the way that a kind of civilizational domination, the way that domination has been eroticized as part of the project of empire, right? So she draws on that and then she creates these stories built on this eroticized civilizational discourse that's written into characters in romance plots. And there, there's always a little soft BDSM going on. She scandalizes readers a little bit with the soft BDSM uh, points in uh, these plots where the characters are eroticized. So the female characters are eroticized in a in a parallel way. Um, she's a, you know a kind of Ann Coulter feminist in that she thinks of men and women are equal as long as they're gender uh, there's a there's an extreme gender binary and women are glamorous and men are manly and women can be equal to men in everything her female hero in atlas shrugged runs a railroad except sex where they are power bottoms. So the women are all femme power bottoms, um, and so their power is really derived from, they have a power in the world that's based in their glamorous femme sexiness, which is tied to their whiteness, their slenderness, their Aryan, their good looks, they're all blonde. And she, uh, the only place where they, they, they prove their femininity is by submitting to a, a, a hero, a, their male hero. Um, so that romance plot and that binary gender and that kind of equality of, of binary opposites is really a key thread where teenagers read this work and they often find exactly the points of sexiness that they then identify aspirationally with these heroic categ- uh, these heroic characters as the people that, well, I will be the exceptional creative figure who breaks out from the mediocre and there's a set of identifications that attach and that will make me sexy. Everyone will be lusting after me for my entrepreneurial sexiness. You can see that in the way that, say, Silicon Valley tech moguls, who maybe were nerds in high school, and invent themselves into Ayn Rand heroes. Donald Trump thinks he's an Ayn Rand hero. He imagines himself to be Howard Rourke, the redheaded architect in The Fountainhead. He's, in fact, an Ayn Rand villain. He's a crony capitalist with not an Aryan body of the sort she thought was powerful and sexy, and she would have made hideous fun of him. But he understands himself as, as a, he eroticizes his own being in the world. There's a libidinal investment in the way he imagines himself that's partly in and through an Ayn Rand character. Given that she thought she was the smartest person who ever lived, why was it so impossible for her to portray a female hero to whom men ultimately submit. Because that would have violated uh, her her fundamental commitment to a gender to a gendered binary, 
right? So her fundamental commitment in the end was that this is not in her life, right? This is in her work and in her novels and in her imaginings. Femininity itself is defined by submission. And then she tries to get around that by saying, well, it only has to be in this one place, the bedroom, and then it doesn't have to be anywhere else. And that's her her workaround. Um, In her actual life, though, it was very different. She basically cast her husband. She met him on a film lot in Hollywood, and um, incredibly handsome guy who looks like her kind of Aryan hero, right? Chiseled face, tall, blonde, slender, beautiful man. Um, But he was like a wallflower. He, well, he was a florist. He loved peacocks. He he dressed beautifully. He was very passive. He did everything she told him to. He sat around and looked glamorous. He 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 was basic, basically almost her butler. And then he died of alcoholism. But she always introduced him as her hero, right? This is my masculine Ayn Rand hero because he looked like one. But he had none of the other characteristics that she ascribed. So her looked life the part, and her work were full of contradictions. Looked, he looked the part, which sounds right. very familiar to our current president, who yes, exactly. reportedly chooses cabinet members and whatnot based, based on, on whether they look the part. That's what she did. Right. That's what she did. You know, her life and work are full of like incredible contradictions. So here she is, the ultimate rationalist who um, had a complete mental breakdown when her boyfriend, she found out her boyfriend was cheating on her. She's the ultimate individualist who is the head of a cult where everyone has to follow and believe everything that she says. Right. So her life and even her work itself is just rife with contradiction. Um, And And she was a Benzedrine addict. Pardon? Yes, she was a Benzedrine. Benzedrine Act. That's how she wrote Atlas Shrugged. It took her 13 years. She did it mostly on Benzedrine. And after she went off Benzedrine, when she finished Atlas Shrugged and she fell into a major, major depression that she pretty much never really recovered from, uh, her Benzedrine depression, which was followed by the uh, the tragic affair and the consequences of that. Um, and she never really, uh, really recovered from that. Was she a prisoner of her own cruel optimism? (laughs) No, she was. I really resist diagnosing her because when we diagnose someone, sometimes we then remove them from the cultural context and say this person is an exceptional person because they have a diagnosis and so they're not representative of their culture. And he's so – she is so deeply embedded in our cultural context and drawing so deeply from the discourses and narratives that are at the core of the culture that we live in that I don't want to single him – single her out by diagnosing her. But when we start talking about her as an individual, it's a little hard to completely evade the fact that she had the characteristics of a malignant narcissist. Right. So she undermined herself at every turn with with rage, with narcissistic rage. Every time things did not go exactly as she wanted them to go and people didn't respond exactly as she wanted them to respond, she uh, melted down. So um, that also sounds familiar. Yeah, it is very, very <laughs> Trumpian, right? You it's know, really and also, weird how resonant yeah, it all is. Yeah, the malignant narcissism. I mean, it, you know, the whole thing about it, the storm was going to Alabama. Can't be wrong. Can't be wrong. <laughs> and the Sharpie marker. Yeah, oh, it's just oh, really, geez. it's you can't make it up. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> but that's what um, that's what she was she was like. So her 
her vision for herself began in this, I mean, it began in this optimistic arc where she thought she was a genius and she believed she'd go to Hollywood and she'd really make it there. But in fact, she didn't understand Hollywood or how Hollywood worked. Um, and so she got driven out of Hollywood. She went to Washington. She tried to be part of the anti-communist uh, program there in the McCarthy era. She misunderstood that. She misgaged that. They didn't even invite her back for a second day of testimony before the House on Americans Activities Committee. Um, she went to New York. Um, and uh, she was, you know, uh, rude and demanding and uh, alienated everyone. And by the end of her life, she was depressed and alone. And she died of lung cancer. She had been a smoker all her life who always denied that smoking had any connection with lung cancer. And she asserted that unto her death of lung cancer, pretty much alone. She began that arc, you know, not unlike the whole 20th into 21st century trajectory of capitalism. She started out optimistic about the future of herself and of capitalism. And by the time she died, which was in 1982, so right at the beginning of the real the state project of neoliberalism, she was grim and depressed and uh, no longer optimistic about anything. She was in a constant rage at the time of her death. Rand's first English language novel, which was never completed, depicted a hero based upon a Los Angeles multiple murderer named William Hickman, who, amongst other things, kidnapped, murdered, and dismembered a 12-year-old girl in the most horrifically gruesome way imaginable. Rand was impressed by Hickman's demeanor and personality. She had a crush on him. Which Hickman summed up in his own defense as, quote, I am like the state. What is good for me is right. He said that at his trial. Yes. Gore, Gore Vidal wrote in 1961, quote, Ayn Rand's philosophy is nearly perfect in its immorality, which makes the size of her audience all the more ominous and symptomatic as we enter a curious new phase in our society. Moral values are in flux. The muddy depths are being stirred by new monsters and witches from the deep. Trolls walk the American night. Yeah, that's prescient, isn't it? Caesars are stirring in the forum. There are storm warnings ahead. Is Rand, or was Rand, distinctive amongst right-wing ideologues in her naked and explicit anti-morality, or was... As you suggested, just was she just prescient? Well, you know, I mean, she did something that was not at all unusual, but she did it to extremes, right? So she 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 reversed uh, the terms of conventional religious morality, and she also appropriated and reworked the assumptions, logics, uh, concepts, and slogans of the left. Right. So um, with the religious morality, she came to argue that altruism and compassion were immoral that they were immoral because they encouraged the weak and the uh, incompetent to uh, have more power than they should and have more resources than they should, and then they would mess it up for all of us. And that more it was moral to be selfish and greedy, like, you know, the film Wall Street, Greed is Good, remember that slogan? That was she was saying that, right, in the early 20th century, that that was a moral virtue, that greed and selfishness were a moral virtue. So she's not the only one who was saying that, but she, you know, she was embedded in a little 
little field of right-wingers. During the early 20th century, they were kind of an extreme of uh, uh, the right-wing, and then they they were, you know, sidelined all up until neoliberalism when that becomes a more centrally mainstream argument, and her popularity rises as a result. But so the other thing she does is she usurps and reverses ideas about the left so that, um, you know, the producers produce all value, right? The, it's the producer's theory of value rather than the first, the title of, of um, um, Atlas Shrugged, its original title was The Strike. Because it's a capital strike. Right, because it's the capitalists who go on strike. The capitalists go on strike and the world collapses. Um, her first nonfiction manifesto was called Individualists of the World Unite. Right. So um, she was always taking left wing ideas and and turning them on their head. And she also took religious ideals um, and religious morality and reversed the terms of those as well. Uh, But she wasn't alone in that. She was just particularly extreme uh, in doing it. This is a good moment to pause and explain objectivism or attempt to. She, She succinctly explained it like so. Quote, one, metaphysics objective reality, two, epistemology, reason, three, ethics, self-interest, four, politics, capitalism. It seems as though... That's the whole thing. You don't need to know anymore. What does that mean? (laughs) And what is she drawing on? Because there's no evidence that she read you write deeply or widely? No, she read in a very superficial way. Um, She joined a reading group that was uh, organized by Isabel Patterson, who was another right-wing writer, uh, journalist. Um, And and through Isabel Patterson, she read um, a bunch of sort of secondary right-wing literature. She could reference the primary right-wing literature. I mean, she could reference Hayek, right? But she didn't actually read most of these texts in any depth at all. Um, And she fundamentally didn't understand capitalism, though she is often sort of touted as being the the most important proponent of capitalism and people become fans of hers and then go on to adopt her view of capitalism. But for instance, when she was in Hollywood, her big critique of Cecil B. DeMille was that he was a box office chaser. Which is well, just remarkable. That's kind of definition for what a capitalist yeah. is. And if you look at the, the Fountainhead for um, folks who've read The Fountainhead, um, it's about you know this architect who sticks to his own vision while he's being taken down by, interfered with by to other mediocre architects, by pandering newspapers, by collectivist bureaucrats, by businessmen who only care about the bottom line, and here's the heroic architect. So that was her vision of herself in Hollywood, right, that she was the creative intellectual, and then all of these studio executives and directors and uh, the the business of Hollywood, the box office chasing, made it impossible for her to be the star writer, script writer that she wanted to be. Um, but that's, 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 she doesn't understand capitalism, and, and capitalism is a collectivist and corporate enterprise. It's a class project. She didn't understand that. Um, So she was always uh, promoting this kind of fantasy that capitalism was composed. This is what appeals particularly to Silicon Valley texts. She saw capitalism as being run, the motor of capitalism being brilliant, superior individuals doing what they individually do best, unmolested by all the mediocre people who might get in her way, in their way. And that is her definition of capitalism. And so she, she 
tripped over that many times because uh, she she got driven out of Hollywood. She she misunderstood the dynamics of capitalism. So in the end, she never self-criticized. She never came to understand that her view of capitalism was incorrect. She just thought everybody was doing capitalism wrong. Right. So all these morons are doing capitalism wrong by treating it as a class project and a collaboration between the state and, and capitalists that they shouldn't be doing that. That's the wrong way to do capitalism rather than recognizing that that is definitional um, to the history of capitalism. Which relates to this core conflict you identify in, in Rand's work between whether kind of her heroes are victorious conquerors yeah. or outsiders yes marginalized for yes. being great how do, how does this arrogant valorization of the ruling class function alongside this deep sense of resentment this grievance over great people the naturally great wrongly being denied their place as rulers. You know, this is especially interesting about her, and it what it's what makes her, I think, the breakout uh, kind of icon that she became, is that she she's not only giving uh, readers the complacent view of the superiority of European civilization and white supremacy and capitalism. She is doing that, but she's not only doing that. Her experience both as a Jewish person in Russia and as a woman meant that she really was excluded from and not able to do many of the things she thought she deserved. And she was bitterly angry about the fact that she was, although she, you know, had many anti-Semitic tropes, her view of femininity required submission in the end, but she also was very bitterly angry about not being accepted into the easy, complacent kind of um, elite you know, capitalist and intellectual elite that she wanted to be accepted into. People patronized her and dismissed her, both because she was Jewish and because she was Russian Jew, ex-immigrant, and because she was a woman. So her fiction and her thinking is this combination of advocacy of this kind of these these deep hierarchies of Western civilization, and also a kind of anger about outsiderness, and that. Her her plots are, are and her characters are touched by that, so that people who there are points of identification for people who feel like outsiders. For instance, she has a rather huge queer following, and I mean it's not just the right wing, um, like the Cato Institute, the guys at the Cato Institute. Um, she definitely has those. Peter Thiel, right? You know, so that kind of uh, gay fan, but she has a lot of queers. Uh, and who write fan fiction. Um, there's a there's an article in this month's Gay and Lesbian Review that is tracing the homoerotic um, themes in The Fountainhead um, without actually referring to the context, the rest of the context of The, ha of the Fountainhead. That's fairly common. And it's because her... Her characters, their marriage is really only represented as something that ties you down. Even though she herself was married, she married for citizenship. Um, uh, there are no children. People rail against the limitations of the family, the way they're held back by the family, by the state, by the church. They're trying to break free. And a lot of queer teenagers really resonate with that, right? It's like, look, the family, the church, and the state – 
they won't let me be myself. And so here are these points of identification that show how a, crea a creative individual can break free. So she has a fairly large queer following, including among progressives, who just ignore the rest of the context of the book. For instance, Ivan uh, von Hove, who's a Belgian social democratic gay playwright, very highly regarded, did um, a production of The Fountainhead at BAM last year. It was very well reviewed. It was full of the um, cultural elite of Manhattan, um, and it was it was uncritical. It was a it was very well done. You know, it's um, a faithful dramatization of the Fountainhead. Right. He was interviewed about it, and he said someone gave him a copy of the Fountainhead, and he loved it. He loved it. He loved it so much. He knew he had it had to stage it, and um, it was because of his. This is the struggle of the creative individual, right? To create what you vision against all the interference of people who want to take you down, right? So his he resonated to that. The fact that everybody's sitting there in this theater and on the stage, I mean, what happens in the end is Howard Rourke blows up a public housing project because it isn't built according to his specifications, and everyone is supposed to cheer. Yeah, this is not compassionate conservatism. No, <laughs> no. And these are progressives. Right-wing terrorism. York, these are New York anti-Trump liberals, right? And um, social, European Social Democrat, who's the author of it, because they're ignoring the context. And, and, and the, the best way I can explain that, I actually went around and talked to people outside the production, I went a couple of times, is that they just ignore the context because it's so deeply familiar, right? It's, it's culturally familiar. They, they don't even register the brutality, the cruelty, the inequality, the racism. You know, the, they don't even register it while they're looking at the kind of romance plot and the, um, you know, the uh, individual creative achievement plot, and they're not uh, registering the larger context. So I think that is, in a sense, the problem of of liberalism per se, well, right? Yeah, because does and that about, also reflect uh, their own kind of class position and the self-regard yeah, that they have in terms yeah. of their own position yeah. as creative professionals yeah. and the unacknowledged yes. violence of that? Exactly. <laughs> and it's it's the problem with liberalism per se, e even when it's advocated by people who are not themselves elite, there's like this dropping away of the political economic context to focus on one particular kind of struggle and not looking at, you know, one struggle for inclusion or one kind of struggle for for success without looking at the broader context. So Ayn Rand facilitates those kinds of identifications from a range of outsiders, partly because she was on a couple of fronts an outsider herself. So she's angry about that. And Though not, she doesn't thematize that anger and outsiderness. It just finds its affective way into her plots and her characters, so that it's easier for outsiders to resonate to it, and and then not really register the brutality of the larger context. So one of the reasons that I wrote this book, many reasons, but one of them was to make that impossible or less possible, right, for anyone to not see what the uh, broad context is for this uh, popularity of her fiction. This, this contradiction between the celebration of elitism and outsider grievance once again feels very Trumpian. Yeah. This idea that kind of leaders 
are the natural winners. Yeah. But also the best people are winners who've been wronged by losers denying the yes. natural winners the their their natural right to lead and truly win. So in its in its expressive heart that's what it is, but there's also room in there for say centrist democrats, right, who feel like they they don't have a critique of the system except they've been excluded cuz they're women or they've been excluded cuz they're gay or they've been excluded cuz they're so it, there's room for that too right so there are people who are not conservatives who are social democrats right who also find a way into that universe and then end up accepting the capitalism civilizational discourse as as the context within which they're looking for their place so it it's 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 available even outside like the trumpian version of it given the the mid 20th century capitalism that fell so short of the capitalism she believed in did she in some ways anticipate capitalism's broader ability to absorb and redeploy the aesthetic critique of gray managerial bureaucratic mid-century capitalism? You know, she was such a black and white thinker that she could only understand capitalism as being corrupted by by those incorporations, right? So she saw capitalism as failing and being corrupted by its managerialism, by its collaborations with the state, by, um, you know, but but in order to, to see capitalism as corrupted, she also had to have a fantasy version of the history of capitalism, because, of course, capitalism has never been independent of the state, right? The creation of the very context of the, the of markets and, and the, um, the set of relations that allow capitalism to function have always been embedded in the state. There, there's the idea that there's a laissez-faire, right, version of capitalism that's without the state is a complete malarkey. Um, and most of the actual neoliberals knew that, right? So they had a they had a rhetoric of laissez-faire, but themselves they knew what they needed to do was restructure markets and states, not eliminate them. Um, though their their public rhetoric was like be free of the state, right? Um, so, but but Ayn Rand was just like. She, she just was like, be free of the state. She had no capacity knowledge to really understand how markets and economies and states actually operate. She couldn't do the technocratic work of libertarianism, let alone yeah. neoliberalism. Yeah, ex- exactly. And she hated libertarians, which is also – she thought yeah, – she wa- called them right-wing hippies. I, I want to get to yeah, okay. that. There's <laughs> some great lines on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the state and its foundational role is – absent in Rand's work and productive labor as value producing, of course, is yeah. nowhere to be seen. Yeah. Reproductive labor is also nowhere to be seen. Nowhere. In in Anthem, yeah. a female character becomes pregnant. But her later work There are no pregnancies, features there are no children. No pregnancies. Just quote intensely eroticized romantic triangles. Yeah. In the fountainhead, maternity is demonized with uh this character who's disparaging it, Peter Keating, his his weakness is conveyed yes. by the fact that he loves his mother. Yes. Which is just supposed to be prima it's, fascia obvious. She's and, profoundly anti-maternal. And, yeah. And then other women are portrayed as nagging parasites or starving starving primitives yes. and incompetent. And then in, in Atlas Shrugged, as you've mentioned a few times, when the capitalists go on strike, they go to this place called the Gulch, which is, you write, quote, free of detectable labor exploitation 
and nearly free of any trace of reproductive labor or family life. How does Rand render labor's creation of value invisible in her microcosmic utopia? And two, what is the relationship between her invisibilization of productive labor and her invisibilization of reproductive labor? She glorifies, right, the entrepreneur, the capitalist, and she sees the sort of the idea and the creation all belonging to the entrepreneur. So the the productive labor, the people who build the building, who make the plans that, that the brilliant architect invents, they're really not much different than kind of oxes to her, right? They, they're people who perform the labor in a me- relatively mechanical way that has been set out by the brilliant individual superior entrepreneur. So it's invisibilized as productive and creative. It's just kind of brute, uncreative, non, non-brain involved. Um, in, in, in her novel, um, We the Living, which is her only novel based in Russia, right? And it's based during the revolution in Russia. Her, she has a section where she describes peasant life in Russia, and it is so brutally demeaning, right, of of these sort of stupid, brutal peasants and the stupid brutality of peasant life. Um, and that's her her view of, of workers as well. She just doesn't, there's no, nowhere in her writing where she's as explicit about that as she is about the peasants, the peasantry um, in, in Russia. So, um, and they're almost like racialized as genetic inferiors. And so reproductive labor is similarly brutal animal. It's like growing a plant, right? You're no different than the soil, right? Um, so she doesn't see reproduction as as creative or productive labor. She just sees it as like an, a, a, a brute, bare life, you know, um, kind of thing. And then because she saw her escape from Russia as being an escape from the state, the family, and the church, these are aligned to her. So she sees them all as the site of a kind of negative uh, solidarity, right? The family will keep you down. The state will keep you down. The church will keep you down. And the only way to achieve is to escape them. So they're very closely aligned. So the nanny state is very much like the wife, right? You have a nanny state, you have a wife, they do servile labor, they like also nag and try to control you. So the regulated managerial state is like, is also aligned with like the wife. So wives are terrible in her fiction. Their wives are all horrifying, nagging, controlling uh, harridans. And all the sexy women are all mistresses, right? So it's um, without children, mostly without husbands, or the husbands are serially discarded. Um, and, um, and and the men also, uh, if they have families, the families have a totally destructive impact on them. And um, I think that's one of the openings for a certain kind of queer identification, right, is the, the feeling of, like, wanting to escape the family, the church and the state. But in her rendering of it, it's not, you know, she's not producing a queer liberation politics out of that, I I say with so much understatement. Um, It's really just the way for her women are a drag. Children are a drag. And the only way a woman cannot be a drag is if she basically is a professional, Aryan, you know, um, uh, achieving co-producer. And uh, that's her route to being a person, 
Other than that, she's not a person. She's a, a representative of the kind of brute world that brings you down. So there's tremendous misogyny um, in her representations, um, even as she produces this sort of very limited, specific kind of equivalence. I wouldn't call it equality, right? Equivalence, which still has to have a corrective moment. Though Rand was an atheist and didn't believe in the family, do you think she shared something fundamentally in common with the Christian right? the Christian rights family values in terms of the bedrock support for orders of domination that extend from the private sphere to the entirety of political economy? In other words, did Rand redeploy the basic logic of the family but shorn of its Christian ornamentation? Well, I wouldn't put it I – don't, I don't really see it quite that way. Um, I, I think what she was deploying was the kind of uh, – a civilizational imperial model of domination and not, not a familial one. She was pretty hostile to nationalism – to religion, she was anti-nationalist, so um, and and you know and militantly atheist, you know anti 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 family. So it, I wouldn't say it's the kind of logic of the Christian right. I think there are very few Ayn Rand fans in the Christian right. There are a lot of Ayn Rand fans in the alt right. There are a lot of Ayn Rand fans, Silicon Valley, right, and libertarians. There are a lot in sort of the the hybrid zombie neoliberal faux nationalist uh, racists in the Trump administration, um, but not in the in the real right wing. I mean, Paul. I Paul mean, the Ryan. real uh, Christian right. Paul Ryan ran into trouble when he gave out Atlas Shrugged to every member of his staff. He was required everyone to read Atlas Shrugged. But then uh, a newspaper reporter clocked him and said, you know, she was an atheist, right? And she also was against drug laws. And she also had an abortion, right? And he was like, came back the next day with, my real favorite writer is Thomas Aquinas. Safer <laughs> he answer. switched out. Because <laughs> there's no way to really defend Ayn Rand in the, in the, in the Christian right context. Um, but it, so there is a logic of domination. And it's, 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 it's built on sort of, imper- you know, the, uh, the British captain and the Hindu savages. And there is a kind of gender order. Uh, of hers that is embedded in that history of of Im- civilizational empire, but I, I I don't think it's quite equivalent to the kind of familial solid because there's a kind of solidaristic familialism in the on the Christian right, which is not not her thing. You made reference to Orientalist film and literature being very influential very formative for, for her. Very formative. There's uh, this children's magazine, French children's magazine called The Mysterious Valley. Yeah. Whose hero is a British infantry captain in India. Yeah. And does horrible orientalist, orientalist things. In Russia, while Rand was at the State Institute for Cinematography in the 20s, she her favorite movie, and she watched a lot of them, was called The Indian Tomb. And you write, quote, The physical descriptions, the characterizations, the thrill of conquest, the eroticization of dominant masculinity, the figures of the hero and the mob can be traced to the representation of romanticized imperialism all around her. She also once told a Native American West Point cadet, quote, it is always going to transpire that when a superior technological culture meets up with an inferior one, the superior will prevail. But on the other hand, you write that she opposed the 1964 rights 
1964 Civil Rights Act on the libertarian grounds of the private so-called colorblind right to contract rather than the lang- than in the language of biological or civilizational yes. racism. She supported – but she had the same position as Barry Goldwater. Uh, Goldwater. Yep. How did Rand's more eugenic and civilizational understanding of race function alongside this libertarian – Colorblind. That is a great. Qu- that is a great question. That's a great question because this really has to do, you know, um, in part with how she Americanized her vision. So the the European imperial vision is exactly from what you were reading. It's very deeply embedded in in Orientalism and the visions of the vision of Orientalism and in racial domination. But of course, there is a contradiction. Is there a contradiction in all of her uh, thinking and writing between the kind of collective Activism of racial domination and her individualism. Like, how do you resolve believing in the individual and believing in white racial superiority? And that all, the, all the great right? white people are in it together on the top. Yeah, like... you know? So there's there's a collective there's a collectivism that then the individualism proceeds from, and these people down here have only collectivism and no individualism. But so she has trouble with that resolution. Um, And that really hits her, especially when she comes to the United States, um, because she wants to, she says she's against racism. Her claim is that she's against racism because she's for the individual and the rights of the individual. But she resolves this through a logic that actually Nancy McLean really explains really quite well in her uh, book, Democracy in Chains, through what she calls property supremacism. (laughs) So um, Ayn Rand comes out against the state, state discrimination. So she's against state she um, is against the, the, the state outlawing discrimination. She's against the state discriminating. She's against the state outlawing discrimination. She's for allowing property owners, because that's who her individuals are, to determine what they do with their property. So the fact that the property is owned by white settlers, right, who came from Europe, whose technologically superior culture wiped out the indigenous culture, that's only natural, Right. And the fact that those property owners will then have the right to decide how they dispose of their property and by contract, that's according to her version of libertarianism. Um, And that results in a a consolidation of racial domination that she then resolves with individualism, uh, her kind of um, merging of the property owner and the individual. Right. Which is, you know, that's. The United States is built on that conflation. The individual is the property owner. So that's – it's property supremacy, right? So it merges with the history of racial domination to produce an apparently colorblind, right, but not consolidation of racial supremacy without the use of a kind of apartheid laws, right, the the apartheid laws that were predominant in the U.S. until the 1960s. Um, so it's quite a hat trick, but it was a common uh, hat trick on the libertarian right, and that was, in fact, um, Barry Goldwater's. A lot of, lot of people who um, um, uh, uh, said they were against racism and then opposed the Civil Rights Act. In terms of Rand's transition from European and Russian reference points yeah. to American ones, yeah. which is a fascinating through line. In in your book, Rand, like like Scientology, her version of Americanism was very much shaped by by Hollywood. Yes, as we've discussed, yeah, her, totally it was. In in Saint Petersburg, that was her whole exposure. You write quote. 
The movies outlined the cultural terms of national consolidation at the turn of the century. It was, you write, quote, an American culture industry built by immigrants, at the top, primarily Eastern European Jewish moguls, stridently assimilationist. These businessmen generally downplayed their past in an embrace of their new country. According to film scholars, these creative outsiders manufactured an American dream fantasy machine, a machine that idealized the United States by erasing its settler colonial origins, imperial aspirations, and stark capitalist inequalities. How did Rand coming to know the U.S. first through the mediation of this cultural industry? This culture yeah. industry shaped she totally, her politics. That's how she, her her understanding her fantasy of the U.S. was built entirely on her the uh, early Hollywood movies that she went to uh, compulsively when she was in school in uh, in St. Petersburg. So she would go to um, first she she went to European movies. She went to some of the early Russian uh, cinema, and then she went to uh, Hollywood movies. And she just loved the Hollywood. She loved Hollywood movies. She loved the glamour. She loved the sparkle. She loved the so she transferred her erotic uh, fantasy life and identifications from imperial children's fiction, European imperial children's fiction, to these Hollywood versions of gendered, eroticized, white supremacist capitalism, right? And um, and then she came to the U.S., she went right to Hollywood, um, and her first job was as a, a script reader for Cecil B. DeMille. So she went right into the Hollywood machine where... She was so closely related. Her fantasies and the fantasies of those moguls were close, right? Like the 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 idea that she she wanted to be violently assimilationist. She she chose a name. She was born Elisa Rosenbaum. She changed her name to Ayn Rand to erase her gender, her her religious ethnicity, and her national origin in order to be able to be, you know, uh, aggressively assimilationist. Her fantasy was that she would achieve uh, easy and immediate uh, success and that she would be glamorous and that she would participate in this fantasy. And then she ran up against the ways that that the fantasy that was being retailed in the movie of an idealized United States clashed not only with the with the actual material conditions in the United States, but it clashed with the movie business, with how the movie business was run. Um, as a capitalist as business. As a capitalist as enterprise. Turns out. Right, yeah. <laughs> and even though she thought she was pro-capitalist, she didn't get that what the decisions they were making that she objected to really were cap were because of capitalism. So she she transferred her vision of Europe that came from children's fiction to her vision of the United States that came from Hollywood movies, that she then wanted to step out of that directly into the world. And then she thought the world she stepped into would be substantially the same as the as the image. And that image was created with immigrant by immigrants like herself, but as a capitalist business in order to circulate to the widest audience within the context of the of the rising U.S. empire, right? This sort of vision of um, uh, American success that erased all of the conditions that created that success, from settler colonialism to the exploitation of labor to the hideous treatment of immigrants to everything else. They erased themselves, right, from those films, as well as every other form of inequality and labor, that um, subtended the world they idealized. Yeah, uh, just as Rand would never feature uh, obviously 
Jewish hero no. in her book, neither would the Jewish Hollywood moguls have Ever. cast no. Jewish heroes in their never. films. They would never have done that. They would have understood that as being a bad business decision. Because right, <laughs> and Rand, by contrast, didn't see it as a bad business decision, but as a bad ideological decision yeah, I or mean, something. And because <laughs> she absorbed, you know, anti-Semitic tropes, so that her losers and moochers often had Jewish characteristics. So they would be small, or they would be wear glasses, or they would be. I'm talking about stereotypical Jewish characteristics, right? These sort of anti-Semitic tropes of the Jew. Her losers and moochers had those characteristics. So whereas her heroes had Aryan characteristics. So even though she was deeply anti-fascist, she absorbed anti-Semitism as deeply as she absorbed misogyny, even while she also tried to defend herself as a Jewish woman, which created massive contradictions um, in her work and her images. But that also produced novels that people identified with. What do you make of these extremely long novels full of extremely long speeches being Rand's primary medium for for philosophical expression, and that she only really dedicated herself to nonfiction writing and stopped writing fiction in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, after her benzidine crash. So, I mean, she had the benzidine crash, and then Nathaniel Brandon started this um, lecturing at the Nathaniel Brandon Institute. He was born Nathan Blumenthal, changed his name to Nathaniel Brandon, and he became her sidekick and eventually her boyfriend, 25 years younger. He encouraged her to turn to nonfiction writing also. So he pushed her in the direction of nonfiction writing, and she had it had taken 13 years to write Atlas Shrugged, and she was so burned out on the benzidine that she never really had it in her to write another novel, so she turned to the um, to the non to nonfiction writing, which was never successful. I mean, people don't read her nonfiction except for her objectivist cult. So the the cult uh, they were describe themselves as a philosophical movement who are aligned with uh, Rand's nonfiction work. They're a very small group of people. Her nonfiction work is not particularly popular. It's the novels that are massively popular. Because Rand loved movies and her fans loved her books that were like movies. Yes. Though they did have here's the part that's hard to explain, you know, is they have these long you know, incredibly tedious speeches in them. And Which are just didactic, the, right? Totally. And she's preaching, she's sharing the truth with you through the voice of one of her heroes. So she has her hero go on for 60 pages, Subtle. right? You know, and he's like just explaining the truth to you, you idiot. And um, um, when the books came out, they were both initially, they got terrible reviews um, in the newspapers and in the literary press, but they had a real word of mouth Growth, So they became widely popular by word of mouth, which meant people were not only keying into her melodrama and her heroics and her the sexiness of her characters and her romance plots, but there was something even about this kind of didactivism, didacticism, that um, really uh, also uh, created believers out of people. So they became, the novels worked, you know, like, work maybe like um, Gone with the Wind or Uncle Tom's Cabin, that they they functioned ideologically and polemically even more than they did as a kind of novel, right? They circulated. Those long speeches, which I just don't see how anybody reads them, (laughs) they recruited people 
into a belief system so that when you read the novel, you not only participated imaginatively in the romance plot, but you were also recruited into, in the middle of your romance plot, you were recruited into a belief system. And that was fairly effective. I mean, it was the the books, the thousand page novels became massively, massively popular. And their sales spike every now and then, like right at 2008, after the crash, those sales spiked way up again. And all the Tea Party rallies, people had those signs that said, who is John Galt, which is the hero from Atlas Shrugged. Um, so you know, uh, decade after decade, this like new recruits, huge sales for what appeared to be almost unreadable novels yeah. that are read and people memorize them and know lines from them and, um, you know, uh, can s- circulate the uh, sayings and characters from them. Who is John Galt? Now you can Google it. Who is it. John Galt? <laughs> now it's <laughs> now Googleable. <laughs> the, again, the, the, this dynamic between critical hatred on the one hand and popular yeah. success on the other reminds me a lot of Donald Trump. Yeah. H- how did that combination of, of factors of of sort of like the professional appraisal being so negative and the popular one being so effusive, how did that shape her, her own thinking and also maybe her appeal? Did people yeah. appreciate, did people like that about her that she was getting hated by critics. Yes. In, I mean, in part, that was a source of popularity, that she was being hated by cultural elites. So that's that that's a similarity to the Trump situation. But say, you know, I mean, we're still all trying to explain, right, why Donald Trump is as popular as he is, why he gets the votes that he gets. And we, uh, you know, uh, your, many of your podcasts are involved with uh, attempts to explain that. It's not obvious on its surface, Right, why so many people would find Donald Trump to be an appealing political representative. So it requires a pretty deep dive. Well, the same with Ayn Rand, right, in that it's very difficult to understand on the surface what the appeal of these novels is. So that was one of my questions. I mean, when I started with the book, I really two questions. One is how is someone who was really a formative, formed in the early and mid 20th century, become a huge icon in the 21st century? When she's really out of time, this it's anachronistic. She doesn't fit. She's not a, a, a neoliberal figure. She doesn't fit. Um, and, and how can someone who's so unreadable be so massively and continuously popular? Those are the two questions. The first question was easier to answer um, because that's where I think the, um, the greed and the cruelty and the vision of raw capitalism is a, a motor of neoliberal affect and neoliberal consent um, so that she's taken up as someone who, you know, um, uh, reviles the moochers and adores the, the, the successes that the entrepreneurs. Um, as the massive popularity, just like with Donald Trump, is, is harder to understand. So I can really only speculate, and my speculation in this book is that she mobilizes very deeply resonant cultural narratives, right, about race and gender and sexuality and creativity and achievement that are deeply embedded in the history of colonialism, settler colonialism, you know, and the rise of capitalism that are core aspects of how we understand how the world works that come from empire and colonialism. And she has done a really amazing job of embedding those narratives so that they 
speak deeply to people's kind of unconscious, their fantasies, their memories, um, uh, and that they resonate to them in a sense in defiance of the political pressures and critiques that come from the other direction. Right. So, you know, if you feel like, yes, and you can't say it in your high school class, white people really are superior. That's why we're in charge everywhere. Why do white people have all the goodies? Because we're better. You you can get that validated in an Ayn Rand novel without having it said explicitly. Right. If you can say if you if you if it gives you a, a rationale to not give a shit, to not have any compassion, to not have any solidarity, and um, uh, it, it it if that's your sort of a, a, a desired set of um, it can put your psyche together around that and make it okay, legitimate it. That that brings to mind what what I was watching the uh, her 1967 appearance with Johnny Carson on the the Tonight Show where she celebrated capitalism but denounced the the Vietnam War. Yeah. And in terms of people reading it and getting these these affirmations for what are pretty horrifying horrifying ideas is something basic to her appeal do you think this the allure of 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 her transgression her and her deviance? Oh, oh, de- definitely. I mean, it's like you know the kind of thrill the alt right. If you read alt right stuff, the um, the the kind of thrill that someone like Milos, you know, gets from saying exactly what he knows is going to piss everyone off, and that that appeals that has a kind of appeal to it. She had that kind of appeal, right, to say the thing that pissed everyone off, so that even when she was being an atheist and and saying there should be no drug laws and uh, advocating uh, abortion, um, uh, which which were not positions the right wing, the right wing was um, organizing around. The, the her iconoclasm, her look you dead in the eye and say the thing that's going to piss you off, has a kind of a kind of appeal that is uh, similar to say the that ones mobilized by figures on the alt right that kind of do that deliberate provocativeness. She had the deliberate provocativeness. She loved to speak to college audiences and just, you know, set their hair on fire. You know, just say things, outrageous things, and things that combine things that they didn't think went together. And to do it with this sort of, you know, with her um, cigarette holder and her dollar bill gold pen, her dollar sign gold pen, and, you know, and pronounce in this way that um, she was like a character, she was a character in her own fiction. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com slash The Dig and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is our history is the future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the long tradition of indigenous resistance by Nick Estes. In 2016, a small protest encampment at the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota initially established to block construction of the Dakota Access oil pipeline grew to be the largest indigenous protest movement in the 21st century. Water protectors knew this battle for native sovereignty had already been fought many times before, and that, even after the encampment was gone, their anti-colonial struggle would continue. 
In Our History is the Future, Nick Estes traces traditions of indigenous resistance that led to the no-DAPL movement. Our History is the Future is at once a work of history, a manifesto, and an intergenerational story of resistance. I recently did a really incredible, in-depth, lengthy interview with Nick as well. You can find it at thedigradio.com. You should also really buy and read the book. Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the Long History of Indigenous Resistance by Nick Estes. Out now from Verso Books. Rand, of course, is definitionally an elitist, as we've discussed. Yes. But, but the culture that she embraced and pervade is, in fact, middle-brow and popular, like yes. the movies. Yes. She loves surfaces. Yes. And, and so does Trump, as your, your book reminded me of an essay Corey Robin yeah. wrote along these lines, where he writes, quote, um, he's talking about Trump, Trump's obsession, the, the way he gets almost emotional talking about um, selecting marble types of marble. And he writes, quote, <laughs> Trump seems to be sincerely moved by the surface of things. The surfaces are garish and gauche, but you sense some kind of inner stirring in him when he writes about those surfaces, a stirring you otherwise never feel. What do you make of this dedicated superficiality on the one hand? Yeah, it's a funny And the celebration of elitism, but... Uh, embodiment of middle browism on the other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of her tastes were middle brow. Her own preferences in music and literature. Her favorite television show at the end of her life was Charlie's Angels. <laughs> she loved it. You know, um, she had a real pop culture yeah. middle brow. You know, she didn't like European high culture, um, even though she identified with a kind of superior elite, creative elite, and 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 with Bauhaus, right? Particularly like her architecture uh, fantasies in the, in the Fountainhead. Um, but but most of her own sort of of, of tastes were were very middle brow, and it's a funny combination because on the one hand she's like Liberace, right? You know, with and that's like Trump. If you think of Trump like Liberace, right? With the gold and the marble and the capes and the you know, and it's just. Um, her obvious uh, pleasure, right, in those things are his, Liberace's or Trump's. Um, there's something about that that kind of um, has a, a celebrity sort of resonance. But it's combined with such a hard-edged, unempathic, anti-solidaristic politics that that's, a, that's, that's, that's Trumpian. It's not Liberacean. But um, that combination of a sort of um, appeal to um, – uh, popular uh, tastes while advocating um, uh, the uh, complete victory by the wealthiest, right? And everything to the wealthy, uh, but it's not a high, it's a hierarchy of wealth, but not a hierarchy of taste. So the hierarchy of taste is reviled as the cultural elite, but the hierarchy of wealth is the donors to the party, right? So it's a uh, that combination of um, populist taste and advocacy of, of radical inequality of wealth. But then it was the other way around in her own critique of of Hollywood where she thought the hierarchy of wealth was tarnishing the hierarchy of taste. Well, I mean, she just thought that people weren't letting her do what she wanted to do, <laughs> right? You know, and um, she was such a thorn in King Vider's side on the set of 
the fountainhead because she wanted to control all the speeches and so forth. So her idea of what was quality, you know, I mean, it made the, the, the film fail, at which point she became very angry and blamed them when she's the one who, who made it as boring as it was. So she thought that the, and it's actually not wealth per se, it's she thought the business culture ruined Hollywood by not allowing the creative individual, her, to impose her middle-brow taste on the popular movies. So the contradictions there are so legion, right? It doesn't ultimately add up and make any sense because it's it's driven, the, the sole logic is the logic of narcissism. Because on, on the one hand, capitalist morality is fundamentally about blaming people's condition on the choices failing people yeah. have made. But, but when when Rand like doesn't get exactly what she wants in Hollywood, she immediately blames the kind of inferiority of actually existing American capitalism for all of her own for not career being troubles. Really, yes, for not being really capitalist, right? Everybody fails her and disappoints her because they don't live up to her superior values, which are never questioned. Like it's the logic of narcissism and there's no other logic uh, uh, and there's no other consistency in the way that these contradictory positions hang together in terms of the like her her relationship to Hollywood and so forth. Her reactions were just based on a narcissistic vision of, of what should happen. And that's not diagnostic. I mean, it's like and to the extent that she's a um, sociopath, to the sense that she's a, <laughs> a malignant narcissist, that's what capitalism is. Right. I mean, that she's reflecting the the history of empire, colonialism and capitalism as being uh, narcissistic and sociopathic. So it's not her individual diagnosis. It's the logic of narcissism and the logic of sociopathy underpin how Wall Street operates. Yeah, that right? an ideologue of capitalism right. is full of contradictions so should not, not be surprising. It's not rational. It's not like, you know, the fantasy of, 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 of pure neoliberal or capitalist rationality. It's not rationality. It's like hung together by a logic of narcissism and sociopathy, um, a, a lot of the decision-making on the actually existing Wall Street, right, rather than driven by pure rational self-interest as the ideological proponents would have it. There's something really Nixonian here <laughs> too. Yes. This middle-brow elitist revanchism, this deep hostility yeah. to – which we also see in Trump yeah. – to to the actually existing elite, or at least a portion of that actually existing elite. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's that's so on point because I hadn't thought of it that way. But now that you say it, she's so Nixonian. Her fate is Nixonian, right? Her hubris is Nixonian. Her fate is Nixonian. Her view of herself view versus the other's view of her, like the, her view of the world versus the, how the world works. It's like she's very Nixonian in her... As a character in her own drama, she's a Nixonian character. It's tragic, and it's predictably tragic from the start. Neoliberal luminary Ludwig von Mises wrote to Rand in 1958, quote, You have the courage <laughs> to tell the masses what no politician told them. You are inferior and all the improvements in your conditions, which you simply take for granted, you owe to the effort of men who are better than you. How does Rand's yeah. style of, of elitism get translated into 
just extreme elitism get translated into mass populist politics that appeal to people who are definitionally the presumptive masses losers and right. masses because well, yes that... why why in rand's thinking are the masses supposed to accept rule by an elite that so openly yes disdains them does well, she does she believe in an ideal where the rabble can be good by recognizing their superior superiority yeah. and thus creating a harmonious social whole or is her vision more fatalistically tragic a world that will always be bad because the masses will never quietly accept rule by their superiors. Yeah, that's that's also that's another really really um, excellent question because you know the question for our time right is how do people become recruited to a social order and and identify desires, fantasies, and aspirations with the social order that is crushing them, right? And that's what makes Lauren Berlant's idea of cruel optimism so brilliant, is she's trying to explain that in a way that isn't a false consciousness, you know, the answer isn't just false consciousness and we go home. It's like... Or video games. Or video games, right. It's like, it's like to try to, to answer that question. Um, and that's so the popularity of Ayn Rand raises that same question in a different frame, the way you laid it out. She's saying quite as as the quote says that the masses of people are are inferior and the only way to a uh, social success is to recognize superiority and and have the rule by the superior and yet the people who are buying her books and re- being recruited into this would overwhelmingly be among the ma- the inferior masses but they don't see themselves that way because indivi- her, her version of individualism and aspirational individualism allows them to exceptionalize themselves from the masses and make an identification aspirationally with the, with the sexy, entrepreneurial, you know, th- that they like the millionaire, like the billion. They have a chance and to be that. And if they were to accept solidarity with the mass losers, they would be sacrificing their chance right, to get, to be, to rise out by their own efforts. As long as people can sort of uh, invest in the idea that a set of identifications that allows them to exceptionalize themselves, that's the only way Ayn Rand's work can be popular. So identifying with the heroes of Rand's fiction requires a sort of cruel optimism or else within the logic of the book, you're a irredeemably brute primitive loser person right and and you have to the way the way out of that if you're a, if you're a fan of the book the only way out of that is self-exceptionalizing so the little bit different than that in cruel optimism is that in cruel optimism berlin is really talking about a kind of ordinariness of the good life like i'll i'll do this job until someone offers me a permanent one i'll go to grad school and i'll try really hard and maybe i'll be the one who gets a job whereas ayn rand it's it's so much more adolescent i mean berlin's version of cruel optimism is a very adult thing right it's not like the the life of a 17 year old isn't to see themselves that way but um uh, Rand's fiction appeals more to this adolescent idea of dramatic, right? It's dramatic. I will aspire to climb the mountain, and I will become right. It's it's a the, it's a fantasy of having sex, and 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 being gorgeous, and 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 making it 
Right, and Sounds that's great. very adolescent, <laughs> right? Yeah, being sexy and successful and like that's what's going to happen to me if I just if I just believe, right? I mean, that's all self-help culture, right? It's telling you to do. That's offered instead of an identification with the plight of all the people who are not going to make it, right, in those terms. But maybe at least in some repressed or subliminal way. I'm never on really firm ground when I go into Freudian territory. Yeah. But they're both maybe operating at the same yeah. time for yeah, many yes, readers. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and there seems to be something there about the erotics of domination yes. and the sadom- sadomasochistic both n- narratives and politics that you identify in Rand that seem to be at play. And that that immediately brought to mind that recent incredible moment when Trump mocked one of his supporters for being obese after he mistakenly thought that the supporter was, was a, a protester, protester and the guy was totally fine with it. And there's almost this eagerness to take punishment from Daddy Trump. Yeah. That then was you really just have weird. To go right into the authoritarian personality part of this, right? Because the, there, there are very many, many pieces of trying to understand, right, support for this social order um, and, and support for competitive capitalism and support for sort of the daddy authoritarian are not necessarily the same thing, but they're being merged, right? And uh, they have been historically merged often, and they are they are being merged. And I do think that, in part, I'm also not someone who is a, a does psychoanalytic readings, but I think in the end that's that's the way to go with this, which is why a lot of what Richard Seymour writes really appeals to me, right? Talking yeah. about the capitalist death drive, me too. Because you you have to um, explain irrationality. You have to, in some way, illuminate the irrationality of it, rather than as so many leftists do, understandably, search for the rationality of it. There's often a search for the rationality. Why on rational terms would these people vote for Trump rather than illuminating the irrationality of it, right? So, um, uh, and and the psychoanalysis is particularly an excellent resource for trying to think about that. So my work isn't psychoanalytic, but it's gesturing in that direction. um, And by saying that fantasy, libido, and desire are at the heart of the survival of neoliberal capitalism. Um, And we have to understand what those fantasies and desires are, what the libido is of of the identifications in order to uh, have some sense of how the thing is continuing to operate. And um, I think that Richard Seymour is right, and you're you're raising it uh, here too, that right now a big part of that is masochism and the death drive. And you sort of, you know, you see that when Ayn Rand's um, crush on the killer, the kidnapper killer, Hickman, her crush on him, it, it came at a moment in her life when she was being... Uh, losing work in Hollywood because the talkies the, uh, of the talkies, and she was not a native. She she could speak English, but it wasn't her first language. She wasn't uh, a, a yet a very accomplished English speaker, so she was. It was affecting her ability to make a living, and she became incredibly angry and depressed and self hating. Right for a while, like um, that, you know, she wasn't going to succeed and she wasn't going to be able to make it. And that's when she identifies with this killer. Right, so. The kind of sado, you know, masochistic sadism, the sort of rage, murder, you can see the formation of that. And then her crush on the serial killer 
it, it becomes uh, a template for all her heroes. Her descriptions in her journal of Hickman, right, of his contemptuous snarl, of the way his eyes looked, of the way he stood in court, about how he was a bad boy and it was he, he, she couldn't help but sympathize with him and all of her crush stuff on him. The very same language and images recur when she's creating these future heroes. First, Danny Renahan in The Little Street, but then um, Howard Rourke and uh, John Galt and Hank Reardon have those things too. The way you know they're heroes is because they have the contemptuous snarl and the, they didn't care what other people think, right? Um, and it comes from a moment of in, in Ayn Rand's own life of, of maximum abjection. That's when she produces the 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 most uh, extreme version of her sadistic hero. Is it a moment of her own objection? So that's the the marriage between masochism and and sadism and the projection outward of rage and self rejection and and putting oneself into this killer category at the moment of maximum rejection. I mean, this is what people are trying to figure out when they write about school shooters, right? You know the marriage of those uh, things. And again, I'm not going to try to, I'm not a psychoanalytic writer, but I'm interested in what psychoanalytic writers have to say. And um, I think Ayn Rand is very, uh, identifications with and fandom of Ayn Rand. Ripe for such analysis. Totally yes. (laughs) Totally yes. One thing I wanted to talk about earlier when we were talking about this kind of bedrock civilizational ideology that shaped Rand's worldview is that it very much had to do with her view of the relationship between capitalism and technology. And you write that her 1938 futuristic novella, Anthem, may have been influenced by Evgeny Samatyan's dystopia, We. But you write that a major distinction is that whereas We is high-tech, Rand's dystopia is always enforced primitivism because for her, you write, quote, only individualist capitalism can support innovation and progress. Similarly, in Atlas Shrugged, capitalists going on strike forces society back into a state of nature. Why was technology so central to Rand's vision? And then why in turn have technologists become amongst her most fervent fans? Yeah, well, so she again. This is this is this is contradictory, as so much is in Ayn Rand. So she did worship technology in the sense that individual inventors. So in Anthem, it's you know this that's uh, run by this uh, you know socialistic government that's clearly based on the Bolsheviks. That um, 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 no one's allowed to use the word "I." Everyone has to use "we," and <laughs> technology is forbidden because this uh, one uh, person who has invented the light bulb. They try to squash that because it will imperil the livelihoods of the candle makers. And, um, you know, it's it, the thing about Ayn Rand, too, is she's funny. She can be funny, as well as didactic and boring. She can be really <laughs> funny. Um, and Anthem is uh, funny. But the guy who invents the light bulb is her hero. So, and in Atlas Shrugged, the guy who invents this Mo, this magical motor that runs without fuel and that, you know, is also the the hero, is the, is the hero of Atlas Shrugged. So technology and the, imbil- imbility, the ability to innovate is, 
is is central to her, um, and she sees uh, the the superiority of the West over the indigenous populations as being uh, related to technology. However, because of her individualism, her vision is on the individual inventor, and she can't really doesn't produce the sort of technological utopia that people who imagine a kind of mass collective technological society do. The the um, Gold's Galt's Galt is hilarious in its anachronisms. So here's the utopia of the uh, entrepreneurial inventors, entrepreneurs, and it's like a an, it's like an old west town, right? That's been reinvented. It's very low tech, um, but each piece of tech there has an individual inventor, right? So there's an individual inventor who runs the mill that does the you know grinds the corn or whatever. But everybody dresses like it's a wild west town. And um, it's a very simple, it's like the ideal of the individualist American West married to this kind of idealization of the inventor. So they don't go, they don't go together very well, but that's what Galt's Gulch is. And then and know, everyone so- in the Wild West town, each inventor has their own sort of like science fair set up in the, the book to sort of show off <laughs> yeah, their, yeah. their project. Yeah, the thing that they invented, and each one of them has something that's their thing that they invented, but it's all in this individual kind of frame, in this this framework of uh, simplicity. So it's a, it's, a, it's a romance of individual achievement um, that then can't imagine capitalist technology, right? Like that this is a class project and it's a massive collective investment and it's a corporate undertaking. and That technology is a social, a social relation. the reason it appeals to the Silicon Valley guys is because that's how they see themselves. They see themselves as individual entrepreneurs who have innovated this startup or this platform or this and that they should be left alone by the government. They should not have to meet labor standards. They should not have to... The people who work for them are just, you know the ants that 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 put the phones together not the geniuses who invent the phones it's their vision of themselves aligns pretty tightly with Ayn Rand's view of the individual not the world they actually live in which requires a collective class project of investment but their vision of themselves as the uh, individual producer who to whom all value should accrue without interference that aligns very much with uh, an Ayn Rand fantasy. So all these techno-libertarians love Rand, but Rand hated libertarians. In, yeah. in the 70s, she called them right-wing hippies. Yeah. And she, she said or wrote, quote, if such hippies hope to make me their Marcuse, it will not work. <laughs> Which is really funny, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it did work. Yes, they did make her their Marcuse, and she couldn't she stop did, them. Yeah. What, what, what happened? Yeah. Well, so she was she at the moment that she was uh, developing her um, distaste for libertarians. It was the the moment when the Libertarian Party in the seventies sort of came into existence, which had many, many, many different wings. But there was a there was a countercultural wing of the Libertarian Party. I mean, there still is a, a lot of the people who who she met, who were vocal and so forth, were countercultural cultural in some way. They were 
were like anarcho-libertarians too, as well as the kind of business libertarians. She had a longer history with the business libertarians. But these new libertarians of the 1970s in the libertarian movement, she didn't like them at all. She reviled them. She made fun of them. They tried to claim her. She hated them. She made, uh, you know, she wrote about them uh, relentlessly uh, ridiculing <laughs> them. Hey, some of it is pretty funny. But time has gone by. If you brought Ayn Rand back into the world now, I think she would quite highly approve of the Koch version of libertarianism. That would match her view of libertarianism, not the kind of countercultural anarcho-capitalist libertarian of the movement that she saw as too countercultural in the 1970s. But, you know, she didn't have the analytic ability to actually see all the different strands she just had these emotional reactions to phenomena that she then spouted off about. But, uh, and her sources were always like either, either anecdotal people she met or she read Time magazine or she watched TV. So she may, formed her political opinions based on the most superficial information um, about any group of people, any 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 public event, any, anything. And she didn't uh, like hippies she either, hippies. even though she was a— libertine of sorts, right? Well, well, or is that not the right terminology for her? Yeah, libertine, no, but she was um, a (laughs) non-monogamist. So she... Non-ethically non-monogamist. Unethically non-monogamist. Unethical (laughs) non-monogamist. Well, it started out more ethical in that she, and I mean, it was ethical, but it was coercively ethical. She and um, her lover, Nathaniel Brandon, uh, negotiated with their spouses to allow this affair to occur. So they got permission to have sex once a week, you know, for a couple of hours while her husband left the apartment. Um, so it was all negotiated. I'm sure her negotiation with her husband was very egalitarian, give and take. Yeah, she was very upset because he <laughs> apparently didn't really like to have sex with her. <laughs> I mean, you know. So um, uh, at least, you know, he wasn't sufficiently dominating in the bedroom. Um, so, um, uh, so it was, it was ethical in that superficial way, but it was, it was, uh, coerced. The, the consent was coerced consent. Their spouses didn't have any choice, much of a choice, um, given that they were economically dependent on Nathaniel and Ayn, both of the spouses were. And then what makes it also veer into the unethical, aside from the coercive nature of the consent, was that she kept it a secret. You know, so a very, a very deep secret. She didn't want anyone in her circle or her movement to know. So here's this proponent of truth and honesty, and she has this deep secret that doesn't get exposed until the 80s when um, Nathaniel Brandon's wife wrote a book called The Passion of Ayn Rand after Rand has died to talk about this affair. And when the affair broke up, because Nathaniel had yet another secret girlfriend, and Ayn Rand felt that that was a, a, a violation of morality, decency, and everything valuable, that he had lied to her about his sex life with a less valuable woman. Because that violates her narrative ideal of these weird sex triangles that are in all of her books, and the woman has to choose the, the, the better yes. man of the two, and all, he chose the yes. inferior woman over Rand, who's obviously the superior one. And, that, and that's a problem. Obviously. That reflects poorly on him. Exactly. <laughs> and in fact, it, it, because she was his, uh, he was her chosen successor uh, and, and, and the, as the head cult leader, um, the fact that he had done this violated her entire philosophical system by choosing a lesser value 
um, as well as lying about it. It meant to her that her whole philosophical system was attacked and and, uh, demeaned, and she never, never, never recovered from that. She had a total meltdown. She never recovered from it. She threw him out of the out of objectivism. She denounced him to everyone. She she never admitted the reasons for it. She claimed it was financial fraud. That was a lie. There was no financial fraud. Uh, she made everybody choose sides. Right. She had him uh, shunned, and um, he went to California with the new girlfriend and became the founder of what became known as the self esteem movement. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Quite he became a, a rich LA. <laughs> Therapist, writer, and uh, on 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 self esteem, kind of new agey huckster. Yes, that's what he that's what he became, and she um, and she had a meltdown. But yeah, so she had an unconventional arrangement that was full of contradictions and unethical practices, as well as the surface ethics. But she wasn't an, an advocate of do what you want. At, at, at any in any in any way, and she she hated the counterculture. She wrote a book called um, "It's About the Return of the Primitives," which is basically about environmentalists and hippies. And she saw them as uh, wanting to take things back to the dominant of, of the of the savages. So, right the. In other words, connecting back uh, to, to this technology to, discussion we were just to having. take to, to roll back Western civilization to the age of the Asian, African, and Native hordes, right? That that's what environmentalists wanted to turn us back to the primitivism and savagery of the hordes of color in the third world, and that if they succeeded, that's what would happen. Western civilization would be destroyed, and all the values that she uh, held dear would be destroyed. So she was a particular attacker of the environmental, uh, of environmental, environmentalism and environmental politics. Because she saw that as a fundamental threat to capitalism and, and technology. Yes, but to capitalism, but also to Western civilization. So to um, to the Western civilization version, you know, the way that capitalism embedded in the values of Western civilization. It required the domination of nature. Yeah, and yes. And not the, caring the, about the, it and the, indifference the, to it. The structures of domination and the relation of domination to the natural world, which includes the colored populations, right? The people who – and this is a are very old idea. I was just talking to world, Sylvia which, Federici the other day. Yeah. Who are they're, – they're associated – those who are to be dominated are associated with nature. Yes, and they should be exploitable. The earth and the inferior others are exploitable resources. And if we say we can't exploit the earth, and that means we can't exploit the natural resources of this labor pool, then the entire structure will come down. And she wasn't wrong about that. She was just wrong about hating it. (laughs) Right. You write that the practical implementation of Randian thinking, and maybe its overall trajectory as well, can best be understood by looking at the career of her most famous disciple, Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan. Yes. How was it that a central core objectivist ideologue became a state manager of monetary policy Randian anarcho-capitalism, or I don't know if that term she would use, but being put into practice in the service of literally the direct government construction of of markets and the economy for capital. And 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 then the hand is visible. And then he took (laughs) he took the power of the central banker. She was opposed to central banking. Period. But he understood that you needed the power of the state 
to deregulate, to restructure, to deregulate the uh, in in the favor of business. So in order to act in favor of the wealthy and in favor of business, you needed the state regulatory power to construct, to structure markets and state policy to facilitate redistribution upward. For Rand, the hand of the state was invisible, but for him, he was like, no, I see the no, state he there. Was, he, he actually understood yeah. how things were. Yeah. Whereas uh, Rand uh, just thought everything should be distributed upward, but she had no comprehension of how that would happen other than her advocating it in a novel. Whereas he understood that you needed the the power of the state to regulate markets in order to facilitate, to regulate the legal structure and the market structure in order to facilitate an upward redistribution of resources. So that's what he did. He became the primary architect of, um, of financial deregulation from the position of a regulator. He was the regulator who deregulated in the interest of, um, I mean, deregulated is really re-regulated. Right in the interest of of upward de- of upward redistribution, and then you know, and then of course the whole thing fell of its own weight because even with his his understanding being superior to hers, he still did not have an have an understanding that if you redistribute all these resources upward into empowered and unsupervised hands, that havoc will result and the whole thing will collapse. Um, he didn't foresee that at all. That's so that scene of him testifying where, you know, that I found a flaw. Like there's there's Alan Greenspan. I found a flaw, right, in his own theory. <laughs> yeah, well, his own theory was, you know, flawed at its core. Yeah, somewhat of an understatement. Uh, yeah, I know there's a, a certain hilarity to it, a bitter hilarity to him saying I found a flaw right after the 2008, you know, subprime mortgage collapse. But he's a he's a very Randian figure in that his I mean, he was in her inner circle. He was not just a member of the objectivist cult. He was one of the five or six people closest to her over a long period of time. She and her her husband, her very glamorous, well-dressed husband, were there um, at Alan Greenspan's inauguration, I mean, in induction, confirmation as uh, a member of the Council of Economic uh, Advisors in the Ford administration. So that was the beginning of his trajectory up to become, uh, up, up to the Fed, joining the Federal Reserve. She's there in the photo, right? She and, and Frank are President Ford, Alan Greenspan, Ayn Rand, Frank O'Hara, photo of his confirmation. Um, so they were very close. And in his uh, memoir, autobiography, it's really so weird because he credits her with humanizing him. He said, you know, he came in and he was just all about the numbers, all about the numbers, all about the numbers. And uh, he just wanted to line up the data and figure out how the data worked. And she called him the undertaker. That was her nickname for him because his 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 demeanor was so a little grim. dour yeah so but he said that she taught him to think about the larger world wow yeah and to think about how this worked in the larger world and to think about morality in relation to politics now the morality was to redistribute resources upward that was the moral action so from her he learned that it's not just a neutral managerial task to be an economist you have to politically engage in order to do the moral thing, which is to redistribute resources upward, which is what he did. Which was a core irony and contradiction that to achieve Rand's moral aims required active and fundamental state intervention. Yes, but she didn't realize that. 
But he did, yeah. She didn't realize that, but she, he did. To close out, mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, while Trump is a perfect distillation of Rand's mood, as a person, a figure, he is, you write, quote, in most ways a Rand villain. Yes. A businessman who relies on cronyism and manipulation of government, who advocates interferences in so-called free markets, who bullies big companies to do his bidding, who doesn't read. His personal and public corruption mirror her character sketches of sellouts and dirtbags. What does it reveal about Rand's enormous influence that the ultimate product of her politics uncannily represents precisely what she so ardently claimed to hate? Yeah. You know, it's it really has to do – I mean, it, it makes the point for me about the investment in her is about the affect. It's about the feeling. It's not about the ideas, right? I mean, her ideas are cartoonish, and some people do become fans of her ideas, but it's the, the, the feeling attached to the ideas that, that superior is, is better and failures are losers. And it's that whole contempt, you know, dismissal, indifference, um, that, that that's the influence because that's what Trump has, right? And that's his identification with Howard Rourke is of the sexy guy, you know, the, the Aryan-looking sexy guy. He doesn't look like an Aryan-looking sexy guy, but he thinks he does. He wants to, the hair. You know the whole thing. He's this sexy guy that who who has. He was the, the best baseball player in New York at some point. Oh, he said yeah. <laughs> the contempt, the indifference. You know um, the assumption of superiority. Those are all very very Randian. But his actual practices uh, make him a Rand villain. And and uh, and I'm she would be merciless about him if she were alive. I mean. It, it would be entertaining how merciless she would be about him from the way he looks in his tennis outfit <laughs> to right every um every 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 crummy self-dealing government state thing that he does she he he would be a cartoon villain for her but he imagines himself to be an Ayn Rand hero and that's the power of her vision is that there are so such a wide swath of, swath of people with overlapping and sometimes conflicting political views and policy views who can imagine themselves into her scenarios. And the end result of that is primarily this affective, cruel, greedy meanness that is the takeaway from bonding with an Ayn Rand novel. Well, Lisa Dugan, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Lisa Dugan is a historian, journalist, and activist who teaches at NYU, and the author, amongst other things, of Mean Girl, Ayn Rand, and the Culture of Greed. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that money then appears as this distorting power, both against the individual and against the bonds of society, etc., which claim to be entities in themselves. It transforms fidelity into infidelity, love into hate, hate into love, virtue into vice, vice into virtue, servant into master, master into servant, idiocy into intelligence, and intelligence into idiocy. 
While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Fiorio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews, I think, help introduce us to new listeners. What really does that, though, is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.